Lord, only when we see ourselves will we rightly, will we see you. The greater we understand our sin, the greater your holiness. The greater your holiness, the greater we understand our sin. So broaden our view this morning of who you are and what you have done. Help that knowledge to drive us to be the men and women that you'd like for us to be in Wilmington, North Carolina. We are grateful that because of your death and resurrection, you have forgiven us our sins. And now may we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 12. We've been going through this. We actually end our session here, this little Q&A session that Jesus has been going through with the religious leaders. And we'll begin in verse 35 and go through 44. And in that passage, a psalm is quoted. That is Psalm 110, and I'm going to read that as well. So Psalm 110, and then Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. If you'd stand together, we'll read God's word, beginning in Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Mark chapter 12. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that he, that the Christ, is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is it? He is his son. And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the place of places of honor at feasts. They devour widows houses and for pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich, rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came in came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. You may be seated. We'll take a moment to reflect on God's word. This is the kindergarten and first grade. And you have your Bibles open to this passage in Mark chapter 12. And I will expose to you my age. Any of you remember watching or even remember the show Columbo? It's an old detective show. And typically what would happen in this detective show, and it happens in fairly typical uh, detective shows, or maybe it happens in shows that have to do with uh, lawyers, there's some kind of Q&A session between the detective and the person who the detective thinks is guilty. And so it comes somewhere in the middle of the show, and they're having this back and forth, And then the detective, in this case, Columbo, he gets his answers and then he begins to turn and walk out of the room. And then he turns back around and he kind of scratches his head and then he kind of says, you know, I just have one more question. And and that one more question really uncovers or reveals something in the plot of the story It really is a critical piece. And so when I've come to this particular passage, I've had that same picture in my mind. We've read through this little Q&A session, Mark chapter 11 and 12. It's this back and forth dialogue between the religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus, what do you think about this? And then Jesus gives an answer. And there have been several questions. And last week we came across verse 34 in chapter 12. That said that Jesus' answers were so profound that nobody asked any more questions. And so I have this picture that Jesus then turns around and he's beginning to exit the temple area. And he's kind of scratching his head. And he turns back around maybe and he pulls on his beard. And he says, you know what? I just have one more question. And this question reveals something very critical about who he is. You'll notice that he doesn't give an answer to it. He just sort of lays it out there for people to sort of think through, the scribes particularly, but the whole congregation that's out before Jesus. And the things that that he reveals, the two things that he uncovers is first his identity. He is the eternal king. And the second thing in these two stories that follow his question is he uncovers the life or the character of those who live in the kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at first. First, we're going to see that he uncovers his identity. He is the eternal king. And secondly, then he begins to peel back and say, and those who are going to live in this kingdom, this is what they're going to live like. So let's take a look at that. In verse 35 through 37, Jesus is teaching in the temple and he says, "Okay, I just have this one more questions, one more question. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? When David himself said in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, David himself calls him Lord. He calls his own descendant. Lord, so how is it that he's his son? That's the question here. The first question is kind of a warm-up 
question. How can you say that Christ is the son of David? This is a big softball for the scribe. He understands this. This would be easily understood by any Jewish person who's filling the temple. How is it that you can say that this Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that you said you know is going to come, how is it that person is also called the son of David. Well, that's a softball. If you look back in your Bibles, and you don't need to turn to there, you just might want to refer to these. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14. Everyone understood that the Christ was going to come from the line of David. 2 Samuel, the Lord declares to you, meaning David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Perhaps a more familiar verse, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne And over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it forever. Jeremiah 23, 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely. And then you remember when Jesus comes into the temple area, this what we call the the triumphal entry. What are the people shouting as Jesus comes in? Jesus has been referring to himself as the son of David. And as he comes in, the people are shouting in Mark 11, verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So everybody there understood this person that's writing in. He's saying he's the Christ. And we understand that he comes from the line of David. And so when Jesus is in this temple area, he's going to refer back to this passage and he's going to ask this question about how is it that David's son could also be his Lord? Well, the first question is a softball. It's a rhetorical question. The scribes could have answered it easily. And then Jesus goes back to Psalm 10, this coronation psalm or what's sometimes called a royal psalm. David is seeing that another A descendant of his is going to come up and take the throne and he's writing the song in which they would sing as this person comes forward. And he writes Psalm 110. You notice that Jesus says, now, this person, we know he's going to rule over all the enemies. He's going to demolish all kingdoms. He's going to be a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And then he says, now, how is it? David is looking at this person. And he's calling him Lord. The Lord said to my, not my son, not my descendant, but he said to my Lord. The scribes really don't know the answer to this question. But we know that the only way this language makes sense is if the son of David not only comes after David, but comes before David. Now, this is something that the scribes wouldn't have been able to understand. Or maybe I should say it this way. 
They just didn't see. They could have understood it, but they just weren't able to see it. They weren't seeing enough. They saw part that this person is going to come after David, but they just couldn't see that the son of David also could become, come before. And we have hints of it all over the Bible. I want to read you a couple. Micah 5.2. These are now let me just refer to you the front of your bulletin because they're all written there. Micah 5.2. Micah is saying this about somebody who's going to come from this clan of Judah out of this little small town called Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is is who is to be the ruler of Israel. Okay, that's fine. Somebody's coming from this tribe. He's going to be a ruler. We're all sort of anticipating that. But then notice what Micah says. His origins are from old, from ancient of days. He's coming, but he's already been. John the Baptist in John chapter one, verse 15. John says this. He bore witness about Jesus. And then John cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist understood that he was he was the person who was going ahead. He was the messenger that was leveling the roads for the king to come. And he said, he's coming, but he already came. He was before I was. And in this very perplexing passage from John chapter eight, again, written on the front of your bulletin, the the scribes are looking at Jesus, and he, he's saying something about himself, and they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham, who's already dead? And the prophets who have already died? And notice, I love this question Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus said, Truly, truly. Now, when he says truly, remember what that word means in the Greek? That's amen. And so when Jesus amens himself before he says anything, it's time to pay attention. Most of the time you say something as a preacher and somebody says, amen, I like that. Jesus says, I know what I'm going to say, and I'm just going to give myself an amen beforehand. Because you're really going to want to pay attention to this. I say to you, before Abraham, I am. And everybody there understood, whether they believed it or not, what Jesus was saying was that he was that person whose origins were from of old, old enough to call himself, I am. Old enough to equate himself with God Almighty. And the Pharisees at that point immediately began to pick up stones and tried to stone him. So there's no question about what Jesus thought of himself. People could have seen it as he went through, but they just weren't expecting that David's son would also be God's son. Calvin says that the Jewish expectations for the Messiah, their expectations were far too low. They just thought he was going to be a mere man, not a divine man. They imagined that the son of David would be somebody who would come up from among them, would have the the power to overthrow the Roman government and then to rescue Israel. What they didn't realize that the son of David was the Christ. He was the divine man. 
And he wasn't just coming to overthrow the Roman government. In fact, he was coming to overthrow the prince of this world, the principalities, the rulers. He was coming to turn all of what we see upside down. And he wasn't just coming to save Israel. He's coming to save all of mankind, of all of creation. Their view of who the son of David was, was simply too small. And, and, and Jesus came in and just blew the lid off of it and said, it's much bigger than you had imagined. And he's drawing their attention. He's not answering their question. He's just putting the question in their mind and saying, how is it possible that David understands that somebody that's coming after him is going to be his Lord? Somebody who also comes before him. Now, I, I want you to stop here and just appreciate, and I think you can, how difficult it must have been for the scribes to see this. It seems fairly obvious if you sort of just pick back through the Old Testament. But these people were wired like we were wired, that their view of whoever this person coming was going to be a, a big view of what the world had to offer. We want a king. We want a really big king. And we want a really strong king. And we really want a handsome king. And we want a, a young man. And we want somebody who's powerful. And all the attributes they would think, well, this, the person's going to be something like this. And they're using it because that's the way the world sees things. And then they meet Jesus. Born in a stable. His entire adult life he lived without a home. And if we are to believe what Isaiah says, and I think we should, he had nothing in his outward appearance that would be attractive. You and I would not be able to pick Jesus out of a lineup. There's nothing noteworthy in the world's view He's not particularly big. He's not particularly strong. He's not particularly handsome. He's not any of the things the world sets up as, this is our man. And so they, they missed it in the same way that you and I might miss Jesus. Jesus doesn't answer the question. He just sort of lays it there before them, trying to help them see that he's not just a man. He's a divine man. Which reminds me of the famous C.S. Lewis quote out of Mere Christianity. Most of you are familiar with the quote. C.S. Lewis was a professor who was an atheist. And he just began to get worked on with the word and with people. And then he came to Christ. And then he wrote sort of an apology, um, an argument for Christianity. And the book is called Mere Christianity. It's a pretty popular Christian book. And he writes in this book this. He's talking about the Jewish people. Then comes the real shock. Among the Jews, there was suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. The things this man said were quite simply the most shocking things ever uttered by human lips. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Now, this is what Lewis is trying to say. I'm trying to prevent you or me from saying something that people often say, which is very foolish. 
which is I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of, of with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil from the, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus was not a mere man. If a mere man comes up and has never met you before and says, I'm forgiving your sins right now, that person is either something different or he's a lunatic. Those are the only options that we have. And so Jesus is trying to sort of peel back the dust from these guys' eyes and saying, I'm different than what you had first imagined. I'm coming. My, my role is to overturn your life. Not just the Roman army. Who is Jesus? That's what he's left. Walks out. And then he turns around. And instead of trying to give him a good argument, instead of trying to say, well, let's try to argue about the existence of God in some sort of uh, philosophical way. He just turns around and says, who do you think I am? You remember back in Mark, chapter eight, Peter says, Jesus asked, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Right. And that's the same question Jesus is asking here. Instead of just to the disciples, he's asking it to the Jewish people. Who do you think that I am? Am I just a mere man or I'm something different? And that's the question you and I have to first wrestle with is how do we answer that question? Who do you think that he is? Don't answer too quickly. Be careful with your answer. Because those people who say he's a divine man, Jesus is about to uncover the way those people should live their lives. So before we look at the contrast between the scribes and the widow, fix in your mind clearly, who do you think Jesus Christ is? If he's a divine man, then he's come up, he's come here to set up a totally different kind of kingdom. And he's come to turn over probably much of your agenda. And he wants you to live in a certain way. And the contrast couldn't be any greater than these two pictures that he gives, gives us at the end of chapter 12. Let's notice that. First of all, I want to go back to this passage. Remember when Jesus in Mark chapter eight, he looks at the disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ Messiah. And what what happens after that? Okay, right. And then he gets his 12 guys in this huddle. 
Okay, you got the answer right. Now, we're, we're going to run this play. You ready? And all disciples. Yeah. Man, lean in. This, this is going to be awesome. You really think I'm the divine man? I'm the Christ? Yeah. What's the play? Call it. Anybody who wants to come after me. I do. Every disciple. That's us, man. You must completely abandon your own life. You must be willing to take up your cross and follow me. In fact, if you have any designs to put your life and your comfort above mine, you can't get in. You can't run the play if you're going to be that way. You got that? Okay, guys. Break. And Jesus starts marching down the road, and how many disciples are coming after him? I just have this picture. They're all in the huddle going, I thought it was going to be a different play. I thought it was going to be something about great for me. But what I just learned is I have to, I have, to have all of my dreams, all the things I had invested in, completely overturned. Jesus looks at these two people and he says, here's the character. Let me, let me uncover for you the kind of person who lives for the kingdom of this world and the kind of person who lives and understands that Jesus is the divine man and lives for the kingdom of another world. The scribe, verse 38. Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats and places of honor. They devour widows' houses. They make long prayers. And as you go on down, they give out of their abundance. Verse 44. Let me just click off a few of these characteristics. You think according to your own life. The character of somebody who's living in this earthly kingdom is they're primarily preoccupied in trying to get themselves noticed. That's what their primary primary concern is. And in whatever fashion, in whatever way, I don't care. I just need to be noticed. And Jesus points out some of the ways the scribes would do that. First of all, they're concerned about fashion. Before they go out and meet anybody, they make sure they have the right things on because they want everybody to be drawn to what they're wearing. Do you know anybody like that? They know people are going to notice what they're wearing, so they want to make sure they've got the right emblems and the right tags and it's from the right place. Because they need some sort of identity, so they're primarily concerned about fashion. Or they're primarily concerned about titles, these greetings. The, the scribes would walk through the uh, marketplace. And it'd be like if you were a professor or a doctor or a reverend. You just like to have your title spilled out there in front of people. So people know, hey, he's somebody. Are you concerned about your title? They have the best seats. They live their life in comparison to other people. Somebody who lives according to the kingdom of this world lives by comparison, by comparing their lives to other people in this world. 
I'm smarter than that person. I'm poorer than that person. I'm thinner than that person. I have more hair on my head right now than that person. I'm tanner than that person. I'm healthier than that person. And the list goes on and on. The person who lives in this world constantly is comparing themselves to somebody else in this world. And they know, do they have the best seat or do they have a seat that's a little bit less? And you're kind, always trying to jockey for position. You're dying to look like somebody else or to be noticed in some way. Even if it's in spiritual matters, you make long prayers. You make sure people know that you're fasting. They've got, they understand what you're doing spiritually so they can at least look at you and say, wow, this person's really going for it. You have to be noticed on this level. And finally, one more characteristics they, they give out of their abundance. See that in verse 44? The person who lives according to the principles of this world, this is what they do when they get a paycheck. They get a paycheck and they say, here are all the things that I have to have. I have to have food. I have to have shelter. I have to have clothing. I have to have a new list. And then whatever's left after I've gotten those things down, then out of that money, that's my abundance. And so, well, I have a lot left over. I might have a little left over. And I give out of that amount. If you're living in that way, you're living underneath this operational style. You're giving out of your abundance. And then Jesus says, now let's look at somebody else. This is where I want us to close. Jesus is standing in the temple courtyard and in the temple courtyard, there may be a dozen or so big brass buckets. And if there's no paper money, there's all coins. So you would know if a rich person came along, right? Because all have the dump. You ever been in the food line or wherever they have those coin coin stars, something like that? You love that sound. Just you person. I think, how do you have that much change? That's like a million dollars. And so they're dumping the change and you hear it. And then this poor widow woman, which is basically saying a person who has absolutely no identity in this culture. You're poor, you're a widow and you're a woman. She comes by and she has two small copper coins and she doesn't make any noise. And Jesus is watching. In another sermon, a good preacher might say, when you give, Jesus is watching. But that's not my point right here. But Jesus is watching. And as soon as he sees this woman, he gets in another huddle. Guys, guys, come here. Come here. All 12 of them. Okay. Now, you remember what I've been talking about? I've just seen it. This is exactly what I'm talking about. And the disciples are thinking, well, who is this great person going to be? I cannot wait for Jesus to point out this person. They must be tremendous. They said, right over there. You see that woman? And, and I'm just guessing that they must have th- been thinking, I don't see the wo- I mean, let me get behind him because I, what I see is like a poor widow woman. I don't see anything special. That, that's it. They don't, they're not giving out of their abundance. What does it say? She gave 
her all. It's difficult to translate this because the word, she gave her own life, she gave her own bios, that's what it means in in the Greek. She gave her her whole life. She gave out of her own poverty. She knew in giving that she wasn't going to give up any of her desires. She was going to give up her needs. She wasn't going to eat. She wasn't going to have shelter. She wasn't going to have any of those things because she was completely focused that her faith in this eternal God, this eternal King, that was going to carry her forward. Her faith was going to carry her forward. Not her money, not her abundance, not her fashion, not her name. She understood that her faith was more valuable than her life. Remember the disciples? Think back. Mark chapter 4. They're out on the, the, the raging sea. They've tried their best to get back to shore. Where's Jesus? Asleep. Now they come back to Jesus, and what do they say? Remember the the passage? Don't you care about our life? And what does Jesus say? Completely knocked them down, I think. What about your faith? In other words, I'm not that concerned about this life. Don't you see? There's an eternal life out there. And if you're primarily focused on this life, you're going to miss the eternal life. This is it. This is the picture. If you've ever walked around and said, I just don't know how to live as a Christian. Here it is. It couldn't be any plainer. And he's calling all of his disciples together, even you right now. And he's saying, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for people who just give out of their abundance once they have met all of their needs. I'm looking for the person who has put their whole life out on the line for me. That's the kind of person I'm looking for. You must see before you do this that you're giving your life to a divine man, not a mere man. So this is where the knowledge is helpful to know. I'm giving my life to the divine man. But then he's asking for you for your whole life. I've had the occasion just this week to recall something, a, a, a picture that I've used, an illustration I've used one other time that helps me think about this picture, maybe with even some more clarity. You might remember um, Adoniram Judson, famous a missionary to Burma, to India. A very interesting story, but after he's converted, he has a sense that he needs to go serve the Lord in a foreign country. He's going to go to India. And he meets what he hopes is going to be his wife, Anne. And he knows the trip to India and living in India is not going to be easy. And so he writes this letter to Anne's father. You got the picture? Because I'm going to read the letter in just a moment. Imagine... Now you're Anne's father. And this is the letter Adniram, the guy who wants to marry your precious daughter, has now sent to you. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. 
whether you can consent to her departure, her subjection to the hardships and suffering of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps violent death. I mean, that's a tough opening couple of lines. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home? You see how he grounds it? Can you consent? Not to me. Not to me, Adoniram Judson, a mere man. No, you're not consenting to that. You're consenting to the divine man who has come and he has left his heavenly home. He has given up everything for you. Can you consent to that man? The man who died for her, for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? Love this picture with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise to which shall redound to her savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What a legacy. What a life that people will redound to Jesus Christ Because of the life of this person who said, all my whole life, I'm just going to empty it out right here for you, Jesus. I don't need all the comforts and wants of this world. I'm living in another place already. And Anne's father amazingly says she could make up her own mind. And Anne then writes to her friend and says this. I'm just picturing this widow woman now in heaven with Anne. I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and to go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. Jesus Christ, in the proclamation of his world, word, right here today, is asking for you to join the huddle. It's no different than what he asked the disciples in Mark 8. It's no different than what happened in Mark chapter 12. It's no different than what happened in Anne and Adoniram Judson's life. Right now, he's saying, anybody in? Come, come on. But when you get in the huddle, I don't want there to be any confusion about what he's going to ask. Your whole life. Everything that the world values completely overturned. For things in eternity you cannot possibly imagine. You ready? Let's pray. Lord, this is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, just like you were in the lives of the disciples, just like you were in Ad and Adoniram Judson's life, just like you've been in millions of Christians' life. We must see the divine 
man. We must know for certain who you are. And once we are consumed by that, then we can give our whole life away here in this world. I don't know what that's going to mean for everybody in here. I know it's not going to mean everybody moves to Burma next week. But there are things that people are holding in their fists, like two pennies that don't have any value that they need to let go of right now. And allow you to take their hands. And so I'm praying, Holy Spirit, would you do that work in their lives right now? In Jesus name. Amen.